Hi, everyone, and welcome to our 11th virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Jennifer Braceros with Independent Women's Law Center. It's Thursday at five o'clock, and you are at the bar. I'm Inez Stepman with Independent Women's Forum. Um, and today we're going to be focusing on some of the legal and moral questions surrounding uh, drafting women into the military. So that's going to be our main subject. But first, we wanted to, to kick it back to our previous episode, episode eight of At the Bar, where we had a little discussion about Britney Spears and her conservatorship. Yeah, earlier this summer, Inez and I had a spirited discussion, pun intended, about Britney Spears' conservatorship and the legal rights of parents over their adult uh, children, particularly mentally ill children. And as you know, ever since her very public breakdown 13 years ago, Britney Spears has been under a conservatorship controlled largely by her father. This year, Britney broke her silence and petitioned the court to forego a psychiatric evaluation and end the conservatorship, essentially no questions asked. So, well, recently her father, Jamie Spears, um, has actually agreed to her request. So on uh, Tuesday, he filed a petition to end that conservatorship. I know, Jennifer, um, you are one of the only people, everybody was all free, Brittany. And Jennifer was like, wait, this may not be the greatest idea. Um, so I, I wonder if, if uh, I guess, what you think happened here now that um, Jamie Spears is essentially giving up his side of this fight, Um and has it made you change your mind or do you think this is publicity or, or um, uh, wh what do you think is going on here? I think it's really interesting because just a few short weeks ago, you know, Jamie Spears was saying, look, the world doesn't really know what's going on. You don't know my daughter. You don't know how sick she is. You only have a glimpse of it and it's much worse than you see. Um, and all of a sudden he reversed course. I, I think he basically just buckled to the public pressure. I think it's a testament to the power of public relations and grassroots advocacy, if you want to call it that. Um, courts aren't supposed to, to buckle to those kind of things, but the reality is that, that Brittany launched a very public and very effective campaign. Um, and, you know, Jamie Spears is right. None of us, except Brittany and her family and the people who, who work in that household, really know what's going on. Um, and, you know, it was very hard for her father, I think, and, and her other relatives and managers and people who care about her to tell their side of the story. So I think this was sort of inevitable. Um, and we'll see what happens. I, you know, frankly, I think she's headed for a very public and, and very, um, disappointing fall that's probably going to play out for all the world to see, but I, I wish her nothing but the best. Um, well, obviously I think everyone wishes her the best in this. Um, I, I actually don't necessarily disagree with you. I'm sure that there are some reasons behind this conservatorship. I just think that a conservatorship for a woman in her mid thirties, late thirties is probably too extreme a legal solution for, I mean, especially when you consider how many um, people in the public eye do crazy things every day. Mm -hmm. um, and and so there, and then of course, I haven't really changed my mind, I guess, uh, 
when it comes to the impact of money in all of this. So apparently Jamie Spears has spent uh, about $1.5 million uh, trying to keep this conservatorship. That's $1.5 million of Britney's money, right? Uh, trying to keep this conservatorship in place, including almost half a million on his own PR services. Um, so, that, I mean, that really backs up your point to the, the point that, that at least to the role that the public and the public fur has played in all of this. The fact that it's about a third of his costs um, has gone towards PR and and mm. um, public facing relations. Uh, but I, I just think the additional factor of of the fact that she is a famous pop star who has millions and millions of dollars and the potential to make many millions more uh, just really complicates this whole situation. But if you were tuning in for our our free Britney or anti free Britney takes um, from the last. Uh, at the bar episode, we figured we would give you that riveting update on, on the free Britney situation. But um, our main topic this episode is going to be um, drafting women into the military. So we're going to switch gears and talk about that. Um, we're talking about involuntarily drafting women to serve in the military. So um, this issue has been back in the news recently because both the House and the Senate House uh, Armed Services Committees have now approved an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would require women to, to register for the selective service, i.e. the draft that uh, every man when he turns 18 in America um, is registered for, or has to register for. So um, here's a brief news clip uh, from earlier in the summer after the committee took up this issue to remind us all of what's going on. A new bill before Congress would require young women for the first time to register for the draft, just like young men. ABC's Mary Alice Parks is on Capitol Hill this morning with the latest on this legislation. Good morning, Mary Alice. Good morning, Eva. Yeah, this is interesting and would be a first. Now, it's been nearly 50 years since the government has actually inducted someone into the military through the draft. But still, young men have to register after they turn 18. And now Congress is again talking about whether women should have to, too. Capitol Hill poised to make history. The Senate Armed Services Committee advancing a bill that, if signed into law, would require young women for the first time to register for the draft at 18, just like their dads and brothers. The last time the government actually drafted a non-voluntary civilian into the armed services was back in 1973 during the Vietnam War. Last year, then-candidate Joe Biden saying a draft is not needed now, but that he would, quote, ensure that women are also eligible to register for the selective service system so that men and women are treated equally in the event of future conflicts. On the National Mall, some worried faces, but many women and men conceding the idea felt fair. We are living in the 21st century where men and women are to be considered equal, then we have to be considered equal on all fronts. If it was uh, a draft that included young men and young women, that seems appropriate and fair. I think that's fair. I do. I think I, I, women are being included in everything, and I, hopefully we don't end up in a situation where we ever need the draft again. But not everyone is on board with the idea of adding women to the draft. Republican Senator Josh Hawley writing, compelling women to fight our wars is wrong. Now, some recent polls show that slightly more Americans favor this idea, but it's close. Uh, so, uh, Jennifer, what, what, why don't you give us a little bit of background on the law in this case? Um, and then we'll talk about that, that concept, which I think is so central to this issue of fairness. Like, what does fairness or equality between men and women actually mean? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this has been on the agenda of the of the you know left wing feminist movement for quite some time, actually. Um, and there actually was a lawsuit back in the 80s. In 1981, it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rejected a constitutional challenge to the all-male selective service. Um, in that case, people might have heard of it. It's called Rosker versus Goldberg. Um, the court based its reasoning in part on the on the fact that there were no women in combat at the time. So essentially, well, what would be the point of drafting them if they don't go into combat? Now, today... Women do serve in combat, and so the question is whether that holding is still valid. Um, the Supreme Court had a chance to address that issue and declined cert uh, in a case that raised that very issue earlier this summer, essentially uh, asking Congress to deal with the issue. And I'll, I'll read a little bit from a statement that was issued by Justice Sotomayor um, again, it was not an opinion because the court denied certiorari, declined to take up the case. But Justice Sotomayor wrote, joined by Justice Breyer and Justice Kavanaugh, um, she said, quote, the role of women in the military has changed dramatically since the court decided Rosker. As of 2015, there are no longer any positions in the United States Armed Forces closed to women. In 2016, Congress created the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service and tasked it with studying the issue. On March 25th, 2020, it recommended eliminating the male-only registration. It remains to be seen, of course, whether Congress will end gender-based registration under the Military Selective Service Act, but at least for now, the court's longstanding deference to Congress on matters of national defense and military affairs cautions against granting review while Congress act actively weighs the issue. I agree with the court's decision to deny the petition for a writ of certiorari. Now, to me, uh, that's a very unusual statement from, from a court, um, a uh, one justice joined by a few others. Um, and to me, it sounds like she's saying, Congress, do your job or we will. Um, so now Congress is doing just that. They're considering this issue, and it looks like they may be poised to pass it uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, so, I mean, this really gets this issue really, I think, gets to the heart of what it means Um for men and women to be equal under the law, and and you can you saw in that ABC clip, right? There there is this instinctive uh, feeling, even among a lot of people on the right, I think that if women are going to be treated as men for everything that is positive in life, um, if if we're going to treat women's careers equally to men's, and so on and so forth, um, that you know this is something that women are going to have to deal with. But then on the flip side, there's this very real biological reality um, that, that women for most combat positions, the vast, vast majority of women are not biologically suited um, to a lot of the rigors of, of combat. And that's without getting into um, some of the, the issues with, with morale and cohesion, but it's true. I mean, the court is right to a, to a certain degree. If, if we allow women at all into these combat positions, the very small number of women uh, who want to serve in those combat positions, 
if we allow them to serve, then it's hard to say. I mean, there are plenty of of young men who don't want to be drafted and and wouldn't want to go to war, right? Um, so I, you know, I I guess I can see both sides legally of this, even though. I guess I see this as a, a inevitable consequence of our, our legal regime now that increasingly more and more treats men and women as though there are no biological distinctions between them and that it's right. invalid or discriminatory to recognize the fact that men and women are different. Um, but so what, what, it goes to a conversation that you and I have all the time and, you know, it impacts so many different issues, whether it's you know, transgender participation in women's sports or women in the military or a whole host of issues that that IWF um, weighs in on. Because really the, the fundamental underlying issue behind all of this is what does the word equal mean? Does equal mean the same? Or does it mean um, that people who are similarly situated are treated the same? Um, and that's what it really comes down to. There are, you know, five, six, seven, eight issues that essentially uh, where people stand depends on the answer to that question. And so I would argue that's really the fundamental feminist issue of our day. What, you know, what does equal mean? Does it mean the same or does it mean something different? Yeah. And, and there were obviously, um, as as the ABC package noted, uh, there has been pushback from some Republicans and some on the right. Uh, Congressman Chip Roy, who in full disclosure is, is a friend of mine. I love I love this guy. And he must have been real mad because uh, he doesn't often swear. Uh, but but he uh, wrote on Twitter, abolish the draft if you want, but under no circumstances will you draft our wives and daughters. Total, complete. Beep. Um, Hashtag so- don't our daughters. <laughs> um, so there definitely has been sort of a gut level pushback on this issue um, from some on the right. But now we would like to invite up um, a couple of, of uh, lovely ladies to have this discussion with us. I can't think of, of folks better to have this discussion with us. Lauren Adams currently serves as the legal director for the Women's Liberation Front, otherwise known as WOLF. She has nearly a decade of legal experience with a focus on serving the needs of women. And she's worked on all kinds of these issues that relate to how women are treated under the law. So she'll be a wonderful addition to this discussion. And um, in addition, we have Jennifer Chavez, who has served on Wolf's board of directors um, from 2016 through 2020. She's helped coordinate Wolf's early legal strategies in response to the Obama and Trump administration's uh, policies on gender identity. So again, that same focus of what does being female uh, mean under the law um, and, and what in what circumstances can the law distinguish between men and women? Um, so but she's a lawyer with 17 years of experience representing a variety of um, conservation groups specializing in administrative and environmental law. So she has a long legal background. So before we delve into the issue of the draft, Lauren, tell, uh, tell us just a little bit about WOLF and what your guys' mission is. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, WOLF is a radical feminist nonprofit and we focus on serving the needs of women and girls and defending them in the law. And we focus on areas that are sort of left behind or even in disagreement with other mainstream feminists. Um, so for example, we oppose gender identity um, being put into the law and any legislation or policy that um, turns single sex spaces into mixed sex spaces on the basis of gender identity. We also uh, work against male violence and we um, oppose the sex trade, surrogacy, pornography, prostitution, other areas of 
um, reproductive and sexual exploitation of women and extracting those resources from women. It, 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 this will be a really interesting discussion because uh, as Laura knows, because we've chatted about it before, I don't consider myself a feminist. I'm actually not sure how Jennifer feels about it or either one of the Jennifers feels about how they self-identify. Actually, Jennifer Chavez, you must identify as a feminist. It's in, it's in the organization name, but it should be a really interesting discussion because as you can see, there's this sort of gut level pushback against this um, registration of women for the selective service uh, by what might be called like the the socially conservative right. Um, and I'm wondering maybe um, for the first question, if, if either Lauren or Jennifer, you can speak to this. Um, what are your positions or both of you? Um, what are your positions on this, uh, on this law? Do you think that it ignores those biological realities, which you guys are so often pointing to in, in um, you know, mixed space context and, and in the prisons context? Um, or do you think that this is um, more of a matter that's that's more gray and, and actually does have to do with the advancement of, of women into combat positions into the mil in the military. I genuinely don't know what either of you thinks about this, so I'm really curious to find out. Okay. I, I can take a shot at that. Um, so Wolf, um, Wolf has not taken a formal position on this particular act. But um, Wolf's underlying principles really inform the analysis. And I think we would probably have a lot more in common with, with you two than we would with so-called mainstream liberal feminists um, on this question. Um, so one of, one of the key questions that you raised, Jennifer, is the question of, um, of what equality under the law means, or I think more concretely, the question of whether courts can and must take into consideration the differences between the, 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 the concrete physical differences between males and females in applying laws uh, where the differences um, you know, really do matter. And so, of course, Wolf's, um, one of Wolf's main um, stakes in this question revolves around all of these recent gender identity laws which really raised the same question, can the courts take into account material differences between males and females? Um, one of the things that is really troubling in the history of this question about the draft is that a lot of the discussion really does proceed along the lines of feelings and you know, gut level responses, rather than looking at the facts, the facts uh, at hand, you know, the factual differences between men and women, and also the purposes of the draft and the purposes of the military. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, Wolf's position on military involvement is, uh, you know, goes goes into, you know, deeper levels of fun our fundamental principles about, you know, um, opposition to any type of male violence. And, and I think most of our, uh, most of our members would consider um, you know, most military action to be a form of male violence when looked at, you know, sort of in the big picture. Um, but I don't think that removes us from, from this debate. I mean, this really, you know, again, it comes down to how does the law look at the differences between men and women? And, um, you know, one of the, um, I think you mentioned, Jennifer, in um, the history of this debate since the 1980 law, um, it sparked a series of events. Congress at one point uh, appointed a commission to, uh, you know, to examine the question of whether women should be 
in the draft. And one thing that really stood out to me from that um, from that commission report, it's um, I believe it's cited by um, Justice Sotomayor in her yeah. statement. Um, uh, here it is. Um, the statement quotes from this commission report and the report says, male only registration sends a message to women, not only that they are not vital to the defense of the country, but also that they're not expected to participate in defending it, right? So it's this concept of sending a message to women. And, you know, what really stood out to me is that, um, you know, the, the purpose of the draft is not to send a message. It's not to validate people's feelings or to make people feel that they're being treated equally. It is to create a supply line of combat, you know, military warriors. Um, it's, it's, I think, you know, the question needs to move beyond this gut level um, impulse about equality. And you can kind of see the people in that interview really sort of reacting almost, you know, as though they're taken, they're taken off guard, but their initial impulse is to say, well, gee, that's fair. But, you know, the initial impulse is not always what's right. And so I think that, right. I know, think I think an interesting point is, you know, people need to consider what a draft actually is and what it is actually used for. It is not national service. Um, a draft is only implemented when we're in a major national emergency, when tens of thousands of people are dying on the front lines every day and we need bodies to replace them. Um, we're not drafting people, you know, to take dictation and we're not drafting people, you know, for other more civilian roles. We are drafting them essentially, you know, to, to replace people who are dying on the front lines. And so the question is, I, you know, I think it's very easy to say, oh yes, you know, everything should be equal when we don't actually have a draft. We have, we have the selective service, we have registration for the draft, but nobody is currently being drafted. Um, and so in some sense, it's very performative, these statements that everybody should be treated equal and men and women should both have to sign up for this thing, but we're not really talking about what this thing is and what it would mean for women. Honestly, I would really like to see the reaction of some of these same women on the street if it actually came down to them or their daughters being drafted uh, into an active war. But I think you bring up a really good point, Jennifer, and that is um, some people respond to this by saying, well, the military is, is very modern. Um, there are a lot of positions that aren't direct combat positions. Um, and I myself, I find myself sympathetic that if we were in such dire straits so as to require a draft, that we might need to draft women into non-combat positions of which there are many in the military. Um, but but that brings up yet another level of fairness, right? Uh, it, it's certainly not the whole point of, of having a number, right, um, for the draft and the whole point of, of making it a lottery based solely on fitness, right? Um, you qualify or you don't, and then your name, your number comes out of the hat or it doesn't. Um, there's an element of unfairness in perhaps an adjustment to the draft that might say, okay, well, women women, you're, you're eligible to be drafted into these non-combat positions. That means a larger proportion of draftees who are drafted into the combat positions are going to be men. I mean, how is that fairness? Um, I just, that's, that's a response that I've heard a lot, but um, Lauren, what are, what are your, what are your thoughts uh, 
on on the selective service um, and on putting starting to register women uh, the way that both of the, the committees in the Senate and in the House seem okay with. Yeah, I I agree with everything Jennifer said, Jennifer Chavez. So I, and I also would just add, you know, we have pretty strong positions on bodily sovereignty for women, and that extends just beyond what people would consider pro-choice. And so, in terms of being literally drafted into fighting wars, that really is pretty contrary to our ideas about um, male decisions being made about women's bodies. Um, and, you know, I think that that's really antithetical to a lot of what we work for. I, you know, this is a little tangential, but I noticed during the clip that there was a quote, I think it was from Biden maybe, where he talked about how, uh, having like the right to participate or like to be eligible to participate in selective service. I think that is so symptomatic of what we're dealing with on all of these issues is the, the language that we're using to talk about it is so Orwellian. Um, yeah, I noticed that too. Nobody wants to be drafted. <laughs> so, oh, you're so you're eligible to the be forced. The opportunity to be told that you need to go and like, so I just think it was, it's it reminded me of these other issues we get into with a lot of like these other areas, the sex work and gender identity and all of these other things that are, they they make it sound like these things that are good for women and they're usually bad for women if we have to make up new meanings to words. So yeah. I heard you yeah. know I heard the same token it's 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 not uh, you know people may um, forget you know they may sort of conflate in their minds the the draft or the registration of selective service just with the ability to serve and mm -hmm. you know it it should really be underlined that there. There is, you know, other than, you know, the obvious physical requirements that you have to meet, there's no limitation on women voluntarily, you know, choosing to serve and voluntarily going and doing their best to try to, to even meet physical requirements that would um, make them eligible for combat. What we're talking about is, you know, is conscription, basically. So it's, you know, this idea of fairness, I think, is, is, um, you know, maybe coming from a, a just a general, um, you know, lack of knowledge about how the military works for most people, um, mm -hmm. maybe a lack of understanding of the fact that you know women really are serving, um, you know, quite broadly voluntarily, and that this wouldn't change that at all. And I do think it's worth noting too that the the feminist groups and, and the idea behind supporting like draft equity comes from a good place. It comes from a place of, we really want to achieve this, this equality and this is like the way to do it. And so that instinct to want to say like where we can, let's break down these barriers of these distinctions. Um, I think for the most part comes from a place of really wanting to advocate for women. So I, but I, just think it's so it's really misguided in this case as in many other cases on that and you know Jennifer made the point about just appeal to emotion and I think that that's really the case we see that with the ERA and, and the Equality Act and all of these other things where oh wouldn't it just be nice if everybody was 
nice to each other and everything was inclusive and you know everything's exactly the same and that's just not how things work in the real world so we can't rely on you know those ideals to how we function in society right i think it's i i agree that it's it's important to recognize you know sort of steel man the argument i mean we've so, seen so much ridiculous nonsense coming from mainstream feminists in recent years that it's it's getting a little you know it's getting easy for me to just you know assume almost just to assume bad faith and to assume that they're just being silly all of the time it is it is worthwhile to stop in and recognize the legitimate impulses that might be behind um you know a, a a member of the public ordinary member of the public thinking this is this is the right path to fairness right i mean there is an actual history of um you know guilds and other sorts of structures being put into place to exclude women from um you know from professions and there's a history of of men claiming to want to quote, protect women. And, um, you know, when you ask them how they're protecting us, their answers usually revolve around sort of um, gestures of chivalry, you know, like opening doors for us and things that we really, you know, aren't protective. And and meanwhile, you know, the areas where we're asking for, for help, you know, protection from domestic violence and things like this, you know, the, women, um, you can understand why some women would grow to be very, very suspicious of claims from conservatives or anyone, you know, from men in general to want to be protecting women. But again, you know, that's, um, you can't stop there. I mean, that's sort of, that's, that's the initial emotional impulse, but then you have to really look further and, and ask, you know, regardless of anyone's intent, what is going to be the actual effect on women? That's really what we should be most concerned about as, as you know, as the sort of, you know, the reasonable adults in the room is, you know, setting aside gut, you know, gut, um, gut level impulses and, you know, um, suspicions about people's uh, motivations. What, what are the real world effects on women going to be of this? Well, and the, and the real world effect is now that we have we allow women to choose combat. Um, once you, if you if were to implement a draft, then some you know, women would be drafted into combat. Um, that is the reality of that. Uh, people can agree or disagree on whether or not they think that's a good thing, but we have to at least start from the premise that 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 is what will happen, and not delude ourselves into thinking that it's okay because they'll all be given desk jobs. Um, I did hear one person talking about this the other day, and this is a, a former veteran, and she said it was sort of interesting um, to her that because we don't currently have a draft, she thinks that what this really is is sort of a backdoor way to usher in some sort of national service program. So we, you know, we get everybody to register, male and female, and we don't have a draft, but you know what, now we're going to use it for the Green New Deal or whatever else. And 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 force people into some form of national service the way you know public schools now force people to have a certain number of public service hours to graduate and some schools even designate what types of activities uh, are legitimate or illegitimate for service hours um so i thought that was an interesting take on it i hadn't heard anybody else say that i wonder what anybody on, the, on our panel here today thinks about that 
That that is an interesting take, and you know, um, now that I've now that I've finished giving people the benefit of the doubt and 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 steelmanning their arguments, now it's time to be a, a bit cynical, right, or skeptical. And I think that um, you know, I mean, I, I I would say that that possibility does not strike me as implausible. You know, it 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 it, it could it could be part of the motivation. I'm also concerned about this um, the, this thing that we've alluded to throughout the discussion that that one of the reasons, one of the motivations behind this, you know, I mean, this may start to get a little bit conspiratorial, but you know, this is the ACLU representing the National Coalition for Men, I believe, National Coalition for Men. Right. Um, and um, Who are those people, and why do they have a coalition? Why do they need a coalition? <laughs> well, I mean, it's those people. You know, I, I could I could talk all day about men's rights advocacy groups, but you know, think about the ACLU. They have been pushing so many cases to try to get into um, into jurisprudence the concept that there there really is no significant difference between men and women male and female are just states of mind. And um, so, yeah, I'm very suspicious about the, um, I, in fact, it makes me a little bit more worried that it's symbolic because in a way um, the, the primary motivation, if it's really symbolic would have to be just achieving a change in the law. And, and one of those changes will be again, chipping away at the at the court's ability and willingness to recognize real material physical differences between males and females. Um, I think, I think that's right, Jennifer. I, Sorry, I what's think that? I just, I'm just agreeing with you. I think that's, that's absolutely right. I, I think that, I mean, we see the same arguments for the ERA, that it's symbolic, uh, that it's important that we write these words into the constitution, but in reality, what's going to happen is it'll be one more um, either law or decision, depending on how or, or amendment, um, what what uh, form of this idea that men and women are identical um, we're talking about. It'll be one more thing for courts to point to, to say, well, the law doesn't recognize the distinctions of, between men and women here. So why should it recognize the distinctions between men and women in prison or in restaurants? rooms or in a hundred other areas in sports, right? Um, it's it's all at root a reluctance to recognize that equality um, between men and women is, I, I'm getting in trouble for saying this, but it's in, in many ways a, a legal fiction, right? Um, in terms of the fact that, that these biological differences are real and meaningful. Now they don't impact everything. Uh, they don't impact every decision a woman or man makes in his or her life, um, but they are meaningful, and there are certain situations where they become critical, um, not just to privacy, but I've heard you make the point many times that you know men and women are legally equal, and legal equality means that we are equal before the eyes of the law. That when we are similarly situated, we are equal before the eyes of the law. So when it comes to things like you know. The ability to do, you know, an intellectual task or what have you, the law treats us the same. When it, when it when it has to do with our rights as citizens, say to vote, for example, or to you know exercise any other constitutional right, 
The law treats us the same because we are similarly situated for those purposes. But where we are not physically the same, where we are not similarly situated in terms of biology, the law needs to take that into consideration. And so, uh, you know, we do have true equality before the law right now. And I think the big push is actually to make us unequal by treating us exactly the same all the time. Because if you treat us the same all the time, how is that treating us equally? Are we are we equally as likely to get injured in combat? No, we're not. We're much more likely to get injured and killed than men are. And it's so it's it's so interesting to see that some of the rhetoric coming from this men's rights group is very similar to the rhetoric that comes from trans rights activists. So um, in in their um, in their I believe it was in their petition for cert to the Supreme Court, um, the the men's rights group argues not just that um, uh, sorry what was it. Um, the Supreme Court case, um, Oscar. They are. They don't just argue that you know things have changed now, and women are doing combat. Therefore, Rostker, um, that the factual um, underpinnings of Rostker have fallen away. They argue that, but they also argue that Rostker was wrongly decided in the first place. And the language that really struck me is they say um, that Rostker relied on archaic and overbroad generalizations, or that, that arguments to the contrary, not necessarily the case itself, but arguments against women in the draft, uh, rely on, quote, archaic and overbroad, overbroad generalizations about women's preferences. And then another quote, they say that um, those generalizations were, quote, an accidental byproduct of a traditional way of thinking about females rather than a robust studied position, right? So they're very much, a, they're using, um, it's sort of this perverse um, misapplication of feminist sounding language um, that they're using to uh, portray the differences between men and women as, for, for the purposes of the draft as merely about women's preferences or merely about stereotypes about females. And that's exactly the kind of argument that we get when we, um, you know, when we say that women need safe and secure um, private places to use toilets and, and, and changing rooms and, and prisons. There's this perverse reversal where we're told that we are just stereotyping women as the weaker sex, you know, but meanwhile, Women are women are weaker, physically weaker. Women are unable to resist, um, you know, a physical assault. Women are, um, you know, as you all have have um, observed, women are much more um, vulnerable. There's certain types of injuries that that they're likely to receive in in combat. They're less likely to carry the ki kinds of weights that they're expected to, and so. Um, yeah, this is not about women's preferences or or about stereotypes. I mean, this is about real, um, concrete, uh, you know, material circumstances, um, you know, life and death. And even if it doesn't get to that point, I mean, you don't necessarily have to picture the the woman in the field who can't keep up or who you know is loses in a knife fight to some you know terrorist or something. Um, 
even before that point, you have to ask what kind of resources are going to be involved in testing all these women who we already know, you know, are, 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 are not able to achieve the same types of physical, you know, strength and endurance type tests that they're subject to in the military. Are we really going to do that in order to quote, send the right message? Um, you know, even, even for a person who is adamantly anti, you know, anti-war, anti-military, that's, you know, just, that's a foolish way of spending resources if you're going to be spending resources at all. Well, not to harp too much on the ACLU, although I could do that all day, but they, <laughs> they are, um, the way they talk about these things is so bizarre to me. And I always think about how, um, and when we were researching the ERA for um, the materials that we had released on it, uh, I someone found a quote from the ACLU in their annual report from 1955, where they come out against the ERA. And they do so when they specifically say that um, they that equality does not mean full mathematical equality, and that having something, um, you know, having something like the ERA in place, like could actually prevent us from having desirable laws that distinguish between men and women, basically. So I'm like, well, what happened? And it just makes me think too of all their positions on everything else. They have a document called schools in transition that they did with the NEA and with HRC and have disseminated to K-12 schools um, on, you know, diversity and inclusion stuff on gender identity. And they actually argue in there, they say this, um, and this is distributed to our children's schools that there, that sex separation in sports is based on old notions about women's abilities and that having these like notions is harmful to girls. And they basically make those arguments too. They, their women's rights project has taken a position against uh, sex separated schools, which are voluntary, you know, that they, that they shouldn't even exist. You shouldn't even have the option because and it's there, based there, on these other ideas. There is a whole body of scholarship. I mean, people might think it's fringe, but it's gaining currency. Um, this whole body of scholarship that argues against uh, single sex sport altogether. They want only open competition. And this is a number of feminist writers who claim that if women uh, had to compete with men, and this has nothing to do with trans or anything like that. It just has to do with open sport versus sex segregated sport. Um, these people argue that, you know, if women were allowed to compete with men, they would have the confidence to compete with men and eventually they would be able to win competitions against men and they would have as many awards as men and that, you know, gender and sex would have nothing to do with it. And it sounds fringe, but Google it. It's gaining currency. It's not just in the law reviews anymore. There are people writing about this in Newsweek and mainstream publications. So I actually think that the whole, you know, and this is deviating from our topic of, of, of the military, but the whole trans inclusion in women's sports for some people is really just a vehicle to eliminate single sex sport altogether and to eliminate women as a distinct legal category. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah I mean, we got our, finally got our rights for the first time in place in history, really in these last decades to actually have, like you said, equality under the law and, Oh, can't, can't, 
can't go forward with that. But or prisons, we get into these arguments on the prison thing where people say, well, why don't we just separate by risk level and this and that? And it's like, well, yeah, we can do that by that and sex. Like, there's still no reason why I. It's the all the same conversations, and I also sometimes feel conspiratorial about it at times because I just can't figure out what is motivating this push. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Um, it. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's. It's on. It, it'll. It'll be part of tie in to tie in the same concepts because both of you um, are referencing sort of positive history or legal history of, of women's equality. And I, I'm wondering um, if this is not, or how you would distinguish, for example, a case like VMI, uh, Virginia versus the United States, um, from, because it seems to me that this regime, uh, particularly with regard to the military, is the logical consequence then of this VMI case that said that, for example, military academy cannot uh, admit only men. Um, or that it's a logical consequence of, in fact, allowing women into combat positions that if some, you know, there's also some percentage of men, right, who are ineligible and eligible for combat. And just because the percentages are different, whether it's psychological, as the uh, the folks that um, Jennifer was referencing think that maybe we can just overcome the biological sex distinction by sheer, uh, sheer, um, whatever feeling yeah um pretending you know how, how how i guess again how do you distinguish between if, if, if it's if, if for example we can't have it's unconstitutional under vmi to have an all-male military academy and and we must in order to have legal equality for men and women women must be admitted to those spaces how then is it not fair to say well you know if you want the upsides you know, deal with the downsides. Now you got to play with the boys everywhere. Yeah, I. so I also always thought that this case was not the best case law. I did not, I do not feel that the reasoning is consistent with intermediate scrutiny. It always felt like it tracked really much more. Yeah, yeah the VMI case, that it tracked more closely with like strict scrutiny um, I think this is the one, I, I hope I'm not wrong about this, uh, but where there's a Rehnquist concurrence, um, where there was something where basically says, you know, concurred in, in result, but not in reasoning, where he said, essentially, it's a fact-specific case, which is really more in line with something intermediate scrutiny for something like this. He said, the truth is there isn't anything and couldn't be anything comparable to VMI for women in terms of like rigor and prestige and everything. So he seemed to feel that that for him, that was where that case was decided as opposed to the majority, which was more like loosey goosey, including, you know, Ginsburg about, um, you know, just, oh yes, and we have to, and it's equal and everything else. So I always just felt like that case was really inconsistent with the rest of case law. And I, I not, a Supreme Court scholar enough to know why that might be, but I would say it's a logical consequence of the strict scrutiny analysis that I feel was snuck in the back door there. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm also not inclined to defend that decision, <laughs> to be honest. I, I think, um, you know, a, a lot of us um, who are radical feminists have experienced this journey from liberal feminism where we've had to look back and question some of our prior assumptions 
And some of some of those include some of these cases that are about equality that just sort of give you a good, you know, a good feeling. And it, you know, I always had an inkling of of um, discomfort, like this. It it didn't really set with me. And I think there are women who, um, you know, li really listen to that inkling of discomfort, and 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 it grows louder and louder when you start to talk about prisons and bathrooms and and um, you know things like this and recognizing the differences between men and women in that context. But then there are women who really just sort of double down, you know, cover their ears, cover their eyes, and um, and yeah, I, I just don't think that I can. I'm not sure if I, um, you know, looking back at the VMI case, I'm not sure that I. I think I would feel at a, at a minimum very conflicted, and I would probably personally lean against um, the outcome, you know, um, uh, and, and part of that is just having, uh, you know, 2020 um, retrospective vision and, and, and seeing now how it's being used. But, um, you know, at this point, with, with all of these um, developments in, in this area and in the gender identity area, I'm, you know, I'm just very, very, uh, I'm more conservative sort of in the small C sense in, in the sense of just being um, very suspicious about any kind of risk that, you know, increased what risk that, that women would face under the guise of being equal or under the guise of equity. So let me just uh, sort of deviate from that a little bit. We talked at the beginning about how um, the Supreme Court decided not to address the issue of whether an all-male selective service today violates the Equal Protection Clause. Um, it, were they to take that up, they would have to reconsider some of the things we're talking about here. What, what does intermediate scrutiny mean? Did the VMI case um, slip strict scrutiny in through the back door? And, um, you know, should we continue to treat women under a different constitutional standard than men? All of those questions would be things they would have to address. Um, and so they essentially told Congress to deal with it. If this is something that's inevitable, and I'm not saying that it is, um, isn't it better from our standpoint as people who care about the rights of women uh, to have Congress do this as opposed to having the Supreme Court set a really terrible precedent that, for example, applies strict scrutiny um, to uh, government decisions that treat men and women differently and um, treating men and women exactly the same for constitutional purposes because that would have repercussions in so many other areas. Whereas if Congress just says, okay, we're going to, um, require women to register for those selective service, that's over here in this little bucket and that's a policy decision. But if the Supreme Court were to make that same decision, well then you're opening up the whole can of worms. Single sex prisons are, are gone. You know, um, single sex sports are gone. Single sex bathrooms are gone. All of the, the same list of issues. Every one of these, like every time we talk about this issue, whether it's in the selective service context, draft context, whether it's the ERA, whether it's dealing with trans athletes, it's the same box of issues. It's those areas where sex differences matter. 
Yeah, so but I'm trying to figure out whether I should actually be happy about Justice Sotomayor's statement. I mean, did she how should conservatives feel about it? I mean, did she did she do us a favor by putting it, the ball back in Congress's court rather than allowing the Supreme Court to establish, you know, a bright line permanent rule? Um, maybe she did. I don't know. I just want to throw that out there. Well, you know, I, I think it, it gives Congress the opportunity to build a strong factual record under whatever it's doing, so that that the if you know if if the decision if the if Congress passes a law and that is subject to scrutiny, then at least there's a factual um, you know a factual record there, um, and it's not all being decided in the abstract. Um, th that said, you know that commission report. Um, really gave me a lot of heartburn because it it, you know, it, it uh it it didn't it seemed to to um gloss over a lot of really important issues and and um a lot of important facts relevant to just you know the nature of the draft the nature of um combat service you know there are um i think uh justice sotomayor's um, statement starts out with a lot of inspirational, uh, uh, you know, recitation of women's expanded involvement in the military today, and I have, um, you know, looking looking into the background of this issue, I was persuaded by some of the information that the Independent Women's Forum has presented in the past that, uh, you know, that's that's not the same. That, all combat is not equal, I guess, that, and, and all women's military service is not equal. And that just because women have made tremendous strides voluntarily in serving um, doesn't mean that across the board, a, a draft of women for combat service, uh, you know, is, is the right, um, you know, is the right direction to go in. And um, so that, you know, uh, it, I, I would think that if Congress wanted to retain the restriction um, of the of the draft to men, then this would be a good chance for them to put together a solid factual case. But I also worry about what kind of other, you know, really unhelpful stuff might enter the record as well. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, I just I want to um, wholeheartedly agree that any risk of putting uh, questions of sex discrimination across the board under strict scrutiny would just be an absolute disaster for for women's rights. I mean, we would there would that would you know the the consequences would redound for decades. We'd be untangling that legislatively and through court cases. Um, it it would be a very blunt instrument, you know. And um, Congress approving registration. It could be a much more narrow action and it could be potentially limited to certain circumstances or, you know, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think if the Supreme Court takes it up, I'm not encouraged by some, I'm, it's really hard to get away from the gender identity issue. I try not to be a, you know, a one note band on the issue, but everything really does come back to that. And of course the Supreme Court ruling in the, um, you know, in the employment case, the funeral home case, uh, you know, good golly, that was the reasoning in that was just so bad and coming from, uh, you know, a conservative appointed justice. So, you know, my 
my hope would be that this, you know, stays far away from from the Supreme Court for now. We actually have an at the bar on uh, episode on that issue and on that case. If uh, either, uh, if anyone is interested in going back and for the non-legal eagles in the audience, strict scrutiny would would essentially place um, sex differences on the same level as race. So uh, think about anything that would be forbidden in terms of discrimination on the basis of race, apply it to sex. So that's what we're talking about just uh, for folks who um, are, are not as steeped in, in legal standards as our guest today, Jennifer Chavez, Wolf Advisor, Lauren Adams, Legal Director of Wolf. Uh, thank you ladies both for coming on at the bar and, and for, for building bridges across ideological boundaries here. Um, I think we're, we're all very interested in, in making sure that American women retain uh, retain a lot of their, the, the, I, what I would view as a very privileged position um, in terms of, of uh, having equal rights to men and, and equality under the law without losing sight of the fact that if we ignore those sex differences, they're going to come back to bite us. Um, Jennifer, you want to say anything before we sign off here? No, that's it. Um, thank you all for joining us at the bar as a production of Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org, and is also now available for download on all of your favorite podcast apps, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and others. We hope you'll join us again in two weeks. See you at the bar. See you at the bar. Cheers.